This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real Life Christian Church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. But the title of this series, The Biblical Family, The Strength of Our Nation, really supports Psalm 128. And let me just read verses 2 to 4. Because the family is the strength of the nation. It's talking about the man who fears the Lord. It says, the man who fears the Lord will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around the table. And that simply means an olive shoot goes way down deep into the ground. And you, you, you can't kill an olive tree. And these kids are going to be staunch in the word of God. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. And then I read a commentary by John Phillips, the best commentary on the Psalms there is. And he commented on that Psalm that it says about a godly man who will raise a godly family and that godly family is the strength and backbone of the nation. And man, don't, don't ever forget that. I know there's people here who are widowed and divorced, and I know there's people here that God didn't bless with children. But I do believe in this whole series, there will be principles from God's word. And I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware of those people that will speak to our heart. Listen, the guts of this series is this. It's all, it's all right in here, folks. Do family the Bible's way, and your family will prosper. In every wedding, there are vows. And before the vows come the consents, C-O-N-S-E-N-T-S. The consents go something like this. In a wedding, when I ask people to consent to a marriage, I'll say, do you, William, take Kate to be your beloved wife? Will you live with her? And I'm standing right here, and I got the Bible in my hands, and I'm looking at bride and groom, and I'll say, will you live with her according to the pattern that God gives us right here in his word. And then I say, will you love, honor, and respect each other and be faithful to each other until only death, death parts you and they say, I will or I do. And then I give out a sheet. Before the wedding, I always give out a sheet with about 20 questions to every couple I marry. And those questions are on the biblical, the biblical picture of love. And we talk about these questions, and I begin those questions with three facts, and I want to go over those right now as we get into this family series. Fact number one is marriage is ordained by God. No government, no parliament ever came up with the idea of marriage. This is ordained by God. In Genesis 2.22, I'll always speak about this in a wedding. The Bible says God brought the woman to the man. God brought the woman to the man. Marriage is something ordained of God. It's God's idea. Marriage and family are all of God. Prior to that, God said to Adam as they walked in the garden, the Lord and Adam were walking in the garden, and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he created the woman, and he brought her to the man right there in the Garden of Eden, and God himself performed the first wedding. Here's how I see that happen. Here's Eve, here's Adam. And he brings the woman to the man right here in the center. And the man and woman are coming toward each other. Picture a drum roll. Picture all this great background music. And he puts her hand in his 
and the angels were there, and all creation was there. This is the greatest wedding ever in the Garden of Eden. That's number one. God instituted marriage. It's God's idea. Fact number two, love is God's idea. I look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and it says this, Dear friends, let us love each, love each other. Now listen to this, because love comes from God. Love comes from God. And I'm not talking about, you know, everybody loves each other. I'm not talking about that. It goes on to say, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And when you are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you can love a Christ-like, God-given love. And so we're all born with the capacity to love other people. But born-again believers are given the capacity by God to love each other in a spirit-driven, selfless, Christ-like love. So you got to understand, marriage is God's idea. Love is God's idea. Here's the third fact to these 20 questions I give to couples I'm going to marry. The Bible is God's word from beginning to end. It's God's heart and mind to you and me without error. So put this all together. God is the author of marriage, all his idea. God is the author of love. He gave us that capacity. And God is the author of his word. And so when you have marriage issues, where are you going to look? you got to look, and that's where the answers are. you got to go right back to God. I mean, is God all wise? Do you want to draw on your own or God's wisdom to deal with family issues? And I'm going to give you a quick example. Let's say your marriage is strained, okay? What do you do? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind, and the NIV Bible has compassionate. But other Bibles have the word tenderhearted, and I love that. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave all of your sins. And so you, if you're somebody with a very proud heart and you draw a line and claim your territory, folks, it's going to get worse. But if you have a tender heart and you pray for a tender heart toward that person you're having a difficulty with and say, God, give me a tender heart toward that person, I promise you it's only going to get better. So you go to the pattern, you go to God's Word, and you might ask, well, where do I look in God's Word? I'm going to give a very simple answer to that. You can look at Ephesians 5, you can look at Genesis chapter 2, and you can look at other places in the Word of God to look about marriage and family and so on and so forth. But I think the best way is to just to keep up with your daily Bible reading and just pray, God, speak to my heart. God, speak to my heart through the Word of God and just lead me where you want me to go. So I want to go to Mark 9. I want to look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And was it when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the road, they were arguing about who was the greatest. That's the, you know, folks, that's like a bunch of kids. I did this, yeah, but I did this. I left my business to follow Jesus. Well, I gave up this or I gave up that to follow Jesus. I think they were arguing about who would be the greatest when he set up his millennial kingdom. But the whole big deal is they were saying who was the greatest. And I like how Jesus dealt with this in verse 35. It says, sitting down, rabbis or teachers in the New Testament would always sit. They are about to teach. So Jesus sat down. He's about to teach his disciples something. Sitting down, he called the 12 to him and said, you're talking about who's the greatest. And he said this, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And then he gave this illustration of verse 36. He took a little child and had him stand among them. And taking that little child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes, meaning whoever serves, whoever ministers to, 
Whoever welcomes, serves, ministers to one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but my Father who sent me. And what he's telling these disciples who were arguing about who's the greatest, he said, ministering to a child is true greatness. And that made these disciples think. And I thought about that, and I said, who primarily ministers to children? Moms. Dads do too, but not to the extent moms do. And to shape a child's heart and mind and send that child into the world equipped with the principles of God's word and all that involves, Jesus said, that's true greatness. That's my definition of greatness. To shape a heart and mind and to equip that human being, it's a human being for life with solid principles from his word to interpret life is the honor of honors. And that's what moms do. I want you moms to know Jesus Christ affirmed you in such a way he said you're the greatest. Ministering to a child involves something like this. It says you're looking forward, you know, you're looking forward to something and one of your kids gets sick and you have to stay home and you have to give it up. That's what moms do. They're running a fever of 103, 104 degrees. And so you had your day planned. You take them all in your car, take them all in your van, you go to the doctor's office, and you sit there half the afternoon, you wait for the doctor to tell you it's a virus and it's got to run its course. Moms do that, but you had to have that information. You had to get that medical diagnosis because that's your child. Moms do that. But here's the big deal. God sees you. He says that's very important. They serve behind the scenes. To serve a child. To serve a child. And I want to affirm you, moms, and I want to applaud you today because Jesus said you are the greatest and those like you. And again, I say, I didn't say that, man. That came from the heart of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 34 again. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. So you want to be first, you have to be the very last and the servant of all. Now, folks, why do we want to be first? I think we want to be first to get recognition and reward. When I was a young pastor, I wanted a really, really big congregation. And I wanted a big congregation so I could share Jesus Christ with that many people. But I had an ulterior motive, too. I also had a big congregation because I also wanted a big congregation because I wanted name recognition. I wanted people to say, hey, look at the great job he's doing, see. I look back on those days and I say, thank you, Lord, that you're a forgiving God. And thank you, Lord, that you use me despite myself. Even today, I never, ever, ever want to lose that servant's heart. Folks, you never, ever, ever, you know, if you want to be first, you have to be the very last and the servant of all. Even today, I know when I've done the right thing. I know when I've done the will of God, and I'm very aware of that. You guys know it too, and you've done, you know, you, you, you've denied yourself and you've done the will of God, and maybe like me, you could end up patting yourself on the back because you're always very aware of doing the will of God. I'm not saying that's wrong, but here's a passage that's really close to my heart, and this is where I want to be, and this is Matthew chapter 25. It's Jesus' Olivet Discourse about his second coming. In Matthew chapter 25, this is the judgment of the nations where he separates the sheep from the goats. And in verse 34, Jesus says this, and this, guys, this is where I want to be. Listen. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? I want to be so unaware of myself in doing God's will and being a servant that when I stand before Jesus, when he comes again, and he says, you blessed a lot of people. You did this and this and this and this. And I want to be able to look at the Lord and say, Lord, when did I do this? And when did I do that? I just want this stuff to flow out of me so naturally that I'm so unaware of myself and just do it and be a servant like that. Mom, I spilled my Pepsi. You need a rag. You need a bucket. And you need to get on your knees. And moms do that. And God sees it. Let's look at the Proverbs 31 woman. King Solomon or King David's son by David and Bathsheba is the, is the author of Proverbs. He's the one that the Holy Spirit inspired to give us this great wisdom in this book. And I hope you folks have your Bibles here because you're going to need it to follow along. The introduction to Proverbs 31 is the sayings of King Lemuel and Oracle his mother taught him. And as you read Bible commentaries, and I read this in the MacArthur Study Bible, King Lemuel is just another name for King Solomon. And so we can guess that this is Solomon's mother speaking to Solomon. I'll call him Lemuel because the Bible calls him Lemuel. But who was Solomon's mother? It was Bathsheba. And she had committed adultery with David, and God forgave her, and God used her. And she passed on this kind of great wisdom to her son. And the whole point here is moms. Moms and dads pass on wisdom to their kids. Listen, she said in verse 2, O my son, O son of my womb, O son of my vows, don't spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. And boy, she knew where she was coming from. She knew that. See, you pass on your experiences, your life experiences to your children, what God taught you. That's what moms do. Now look at 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. It's not for kings of Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees. When alcohol controls you, you can't lead, you can't serve the people. And I hope you talk to your children like that. I hope you never think they're too old. This man was a young man. Look at verse, five, verse 8. Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. What a mom. Her son is a young man, and he's growing up. She says, I still have something to tell you. Here's the whole point. Godly moms talk to their kids like the mother of Lemuel talked to Lemuel. They're never too old for you to pass on God's wisdom and what God has taught you in your life. And now this godly mom tells her son, yet unmarried, the importance of the ideal, or we could say the perfect wife. And this is verse 10. A wife of noble character who can find, she is, this is great, she is worth far more than rubies. A wife of godly character is rare, and look, she's worth more than rubies. A godly wife and mom is committed to the word of God, and the word of God fashions her character because this, this, this Bible passage says, a wife of noble character. And that noble character is fashioned by the word of God. And she's saying to her son, 
She's saying to her son Lemuel or Solomon, she said, that's the kind of a woman you want to look for, a wife of noble, godly character. Listen, any good book on leadership is going to tell you always, always, that the number one, the number one quality in leader is character. People cannot follow anyone who's insensitive, who's greedy or selfish. You can't lead like that. And dads and moms, you're leaders in a respect in your own home if you have kids. So I'm going to ask you, can your kids respect your lifestyle? Can they respect what you do? Are you developing your character? A good word for character is Christ-likeness, becoming like Jesus himself. And I'll tell you, when I pray, I pray primarily for development and character. I pray that God would look inside me, and he always does. And I pray that he would see what's, what's wrong inside me in my character. And I pray that he would do whatever he has to to purify my character and make me walk in the path he wants me to walk in. And here's something else. You don't develop your character. You can't. The Holy Spirit in you does that. That's got to be something by the Holy Spirit. See, you have to submit to his word. I want to go to his word and show us how to develop character. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And when we read this, understand, this is what God the Father wants to produce in you. This is what we call fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit is what God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit want to produce in you and me by the Spirit working through us. That's why I said you can't change your character. The Spirit of God has to change it. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, greatness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so you look at that, and you stack your life up against that, and you say to yourself, and I'm going to recommend that you look at Galatians 5.22 once or twice a week, and stack your life up against that, and ask yourself, do I love unselfishly? See, the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit produces in you love, but Christ-like love, so do I love unselfishly? And you ask yourself, it's patience. He produces patience. Ask yourself, am I patient? Does that need work? And you say, yes. And you say, Father, by your Spirit, make work that patience in me. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. You ask yourself, am I kind? You look at your life. Do I, and kind is noticing the little things. And do I go out of my way to help people with the little things? And if you don't do that, you say, Father, work in me. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Am I faithful? Do I honor my promises? Do I honor my word? Do I follow through? Am I gentle? That's a good one. Am I gentle? What's my tone of voice like? Are you a gentle person? How do you talk to people? And then you look at that stuff and you say, Father, this isn't working too good in me. And by your spirit, I need you to make some changes in me. This is the fruit you want to produce in me, Father. Show me where I'm weak and give me the grace to change. And a wife who pursues that, a wife of noble character, is better than rubies and she is a precious treasure. And guys, I pray when you have a wife like that who develops her character, a noble character founded and shaped on the word of God, that you value and you treasure that lady and how often I've said this, and I will say this if I have to say this every Sunday, man. You pray for your kids that they never marry outside the Christian faith. That they marry a husband or a wife of noble character. Because, guys, we are going into a world where if you have a husband and a wife who are pulling two different directions, and one is secular and one is born again, man, that family's going nowhere. Verse 10 of Proverbs. Well, we already read this, Proverbs 31, verse 11. Her husband has full confidence here and lacks nothing of value. And jump down to um, verse, verse 23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Listen, 
There's a lot of stuff here about leadership in the home and submission and all that stuff. But for this message, what this word of God is saying, a husband and a wife will seek to compliment each other. It, it angers me and it saddens me when I hear a husband or wife, even in a joking way, demean each other in public. Guys, what we got to do is we have to pick up. We have to pick up and compliment our spouses. Listen, I, I know I'm going to say this again, but the husband-wife relationship is the primary relationship in the home over mom, kids, dad, kids, mom and dad and kids. If that husband-wife relationship isn't right, the family's not going to be right. I want to say that again. If the primary relationship in the home, mom and dad, husband and wife, is not right, the family's not going to be right. And that's God's plan. And that's right here in God's word. And that's where you get wisdom. This lady supplements the income. Back to Proverbs 31, verse um, 16. It says she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. You go down to verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. So she's bringing in an income. And you got a lot of theology out there and a lot of scuttlebutt about moms working when they have kids and family and all that stuff. Should they work? Well, I just want to tell you, man, in Proverbs 31, this lady's working. Now, I have to abide by the word of God because I see a lot of legalistic doctrine out there that says, no, mom's place in the home, home, no place but the home. And this lady is out there. Maybe she's working out of her home, but she's working and she's supplementing the income. But here's the biblical principles that applies to all moms. The one principle, the principle that applies is no matter what your other interests and endeavors are, your family is your top priority. No matter what other interests and endeavors you have, your family is number one. Listen, ladies, this is God's principle. This is God's word. When there's choices, family is always first because mom makes the house a home. And there's a tremendous difference between a house and a home. And it's mom's job. You have to work together with your dads, but that's the responsibility God gives to mom. To mom to make that home a refuge from the world and to make that house a home. That's your divinely given priority. I mean, I read all these passages and there's so much here. And I mean, in Proverbs 31, it's like you've got the perfect woman or the ideal woman. And we're going to close. But now I want to bring this whole deal back to Jesus Christ because we are not perfect people. In the word of God, God always holds out the very highest ideal. He holds out his very highest standard. But you have to remember there was only one perfect man, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And I want to bring this back to Jesus because we focus so much on his death and resurrection and we neglect his perfect life. If he didn't live a perfect life without sin, we would never have eternal life. And Jesus is our substitute. To enter heaven, we have to be totally righteous. And folks, that's impossible for you and me to be totally righteous. But he was perfect. Now remember, he's our substitute. He is the only, you got a perfect woman here in Proverbs 31. That's God's highest ideal. But he was the only perfect person who ever lived. And here is the precious truth. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his righteousness became, and here's a big word, it became imputed to you by God the Father. But when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were given the cover or the robe of Christ's righteousness. And for you to get into heaven, you have to be totally righteous. Totally. And you received that righteousness. 
when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a precious truth, man. And I pray you wrap your mind in Jesus Christ had to live and say no to every sin to give us the righteousness that we need to get into heaven. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin that we might become. This is so profound, I can't even tell you. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's incredible. Dwell on that. You are acceptable for heaven because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because by God's pure grace, you placed your faith in him. He was perfect for us. And then he died on a cross. That was our cross. But he's on it. Then he rose and we live. Now he's in heaven preparing a place for us. And he's coming again for us, his beloved bride. It's all about him. Folks, we'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But one day, when we're with him forever, we will be perfect. See, we're going to fail and we're going to sin. We're going to do that. But here's what we do. We repent and God the Father forgives us for Jesus' sake. You're not going to be the perfect husband. You're not going to be the perfect wife. You're not going to be the perfect mom. But you strive for God's highest ideal. You look at this word of God and you ask God to work this word in you by God the Holy Spirit. And when you don't meet that standard, you repent and you confess that sin. And God empowers you. He forgives that sin and he empowers you by the Holy Spirit to be all, all he wants you to be. And it boils down to this. I want to be empowered by God himself. I know I can't be the perfect person until I get to heaven. But I want to be empowered by God himself, by God the Holy Spirit, to be the best I can for him. And that's my goal every day. And I pray that's your goal every day, to be the best we can for him. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.